Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, Jerry broke the news that the Vatican has intervened in the U.S. bishops' debate over giving pro-choice politicians communion. Their message? Slow it down. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from rainy New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from about to rain in Rome, Colleen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You are recording from home today, uh, so that's why it may sound a little bit different for our listeners. But how how are things with the opening back up again? Well, we've got restaurants which are functioning well. Uh, We're hoping at the end of this week that they will change the curfew, that we will be at maybe 11 or midnight, or maybe there will be no curfew. In the Vatican, things are sort of opening up again, too. We know that Pope Francis is going to resume his outdoor in-person audiences, right? Yes, he's going to have, uh, I think, about maybe four or 500 people at the audience in the San Damaso courtyard. Generally, I, I think there's an air of optimism, but real caution. Go ahead, Owen. John, thank you. Uh, back to Title X, if I may. So my first question, why does the Biden administration insist that pro-life Americans pay for abortions and violate their conscience? Well, first, that's not an accurate depiction. bishops are set to decide whether to press President Biden to stop taking communion over the president's support for abortion. The Vatican is calling for greater dialogue in the ongoing debate among American bishops over who should participate in Holy Communion. The message from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So, Jerry, let's get into our big story for this week. As our listeners probably know, there has been a lot of argument in recent months among the U.S. bishops about giving Catholic pro-choice politicians communion. The most prominent one, obviously, being President Joe Biden, who is the United States' second Catholic president. So the U.S. bishops decided that they were going to put together a committee that would draft a document for the whole body of the bishops' conference to vote on in June that would establish a national rule. Now, we had talked on this show about whether the Vatican would step in on this or not, and we said they probably wouldn't. Fast forward to May 7th, the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is the Vatican's doctrine office, Cardinal Luis Laderia, has sent a letter on behalf of the Vatican to all U.S. bishops, telling them that they need to undergo a two-part dialogue process before they establish any national norms on communion for Catholics who publicly support a right to abortion or euthanasia. The letter also reveals that the U.S. bishops agreed to send anything that they come up with or draft to the Vatican for an informal review before they vote on it. So, Jerry, let's jump right into this. They're supposed to have a two-part dialogue. What does that look like? They said, you must do two things. They advise them because they can't impose, but they advise them strongly. You have to conduct a discussion 
serene and extensive was the word, discussion, dialogue among the bishops, first of all. The aim is to try and reach some unanimity on the doctrinal questions. Right. They tell them to try to achieve a true consensus. And I'm wondering what that actually means. Well, I have asked a top expert here, whom I will not name, but a very senior person who says true consensus does not just mean two-thirds. I think the mistake here is the thinking of some that if they get a majority at the plenary meeting of the bishops' conference, they have reached their goal and it's like a green light to go ahead. That is not how the Vatican perceives it. And that is not how the regulation, the, the document of John Paul II in 1981 sees it. A simple majority or even a qualified majority does not constitute consensus. So then what is consensus? Consensus would, would really mean uh, very close to maybe 80-90%. Wow. It would be quite high. They don't explicitly lay that out, right? So this is what you heard from your source? They don't explicitly lay it out, but I, I spoke to a, a top canon lawyer uh, to try to interpret the document, and he says, well, it, they speak about a true consensus. So, you know, Colleen, I would say another thing in, since we're talking about consensus. I've heard a comment in these days from two very senior Vatican officials and they asked me about the American bishops, and we discussed it. And they said, both of them, from de very different countries, said to me, the American bishops must stop acting like politicians and act like pastors. Right. I, I was thinking about that, too, when we were talking about consensus, because when you hear this true consensus, you know that they mean like a spirit of cooperation, right? A spirit of consensus. And uh, but. Uh, immediately when you're thinking of the U.S. bishops, the first thought is, okay, well, how will, how will the numbers break down? Because they go for a very, you know, it's it's almost a, a legal thing, a political thing rather than a pastoral thing. Yes. And I think this is what's picked up here, because when I got this comment from two very different ones, and I didn't introduce the topic, I, I said it's interesting that they are perceiving the dynamics within the conference like the dynamics within a political party. Both of them said to me, the church is not a political party, and the bishops' conference shouldn't be acting as if you had two political parties. So that's part one. They want them to have a dialogue to achieve a true consensus. And then there's this second part of a dialogue that they want the bishops to have with the politicians who they might be denying the sacraments to. Why do they think that's important for the, for the bishops to listen to those politicians? Throughout this pontificate, Pope Francis has all the time insisted on the importance of listening and the bishops having a dialogue. And it's not any bishops, it's the bishop who has jurisdiction over that person. So like in, say, Washington, it would be Cardinal Gregory to talk with President Biden or whoever else is in town. They said it has to be a serene and extensive dialogue. Now, this means they've got to listen and see what really is the politician thinking? It's not that the bishop has to go in and lay down the law and say, look, congresswoman or congressman or whoever, you know, if you're going to go down that road, you stay away from communion. That's not the purpose of it. I, I, this was explained very clearly to me. And uh, they are meant, in other words, to try to understand, to see, is there some common ground that we're missing? Right. 
So one example of this could be, you know, Joe Biden describes himself as being personally anti-abortion, but obviously in his policies, he, you know, supports abortion rights. So I'm trying to picture, you know, how this how this dialogue goes. He sits down with Wilton Gregory and says, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion, uh, but my policies are are different for whatever reason. But, you know, I, I have a hard time understanding, like, then what happens? What's what's the purpose of that? What do they do with that conversation? So you have these two dialogues. You have the dialogue within the bishops' conference themselves, and then they have the dialogue individually with their respective polit- politicos. And then they come back together. And then they have to put on the table, you know, what's the feedback we've been getting? And then they say, the letter envisages, the letter from Cardinal Ladaria, envisages quite a difficult situation then when they have to decide where do we go from here. Now, what complicates things here a little bit is that they've already started writing that proposal, right? They have a committee in place that's putting together a policy proposal that they were going to vote on in their June meeting. But now the CDF says that you need to have this dialogue process before you start writing. So what's going to happen? Are they going to put the Cardinal's letter in the dustbin and go back on their own railroad track. If they do, then that is not uh, a way of working with Rome. I wonder also, will all the bishops, would all the bishops, having read this letter from the Vatican, want to underwrite the procedure of drafting a state, the policy document anyway, without going through the two steps of dialogue? Now, Archbishop Gomez has promised they will send the document to Rome, and Rome has set its markers. So uh, let's let's lay down what exactly those markers are. Uh, the first one is that they say that it shouldn't focus exclusively on one category of Catholics, right? Not just Catholic politicians. And this sort of makes sense to me. Like I see that they're afraid of turning the Eucharist into a political thing, which is a really real concern. Archbishop McElroy of San Diego uh, just wrote a piece in America uh, speaking about exactly this concern. But I can also understand the the other side of things, right? Which is this argument that that Catholic politicians, because they hold such a public office and are influencing policy, that they're kind of considered a, a different category. But how do you how do you read this? Well, the judges in the Supreme Court, there are many of them Catholics. They vote. For the death penalty, is this a category that one would go? And these are high officials. Then in the business world, you've got many people, Catholic businessmen. Are they paying living wages to their workers? People who are really not working for racial harmony, who are working the opposite direction, Catholic groups who might be involved. The immigration question, these would be different categories. So why of all these issues which are part of moral concern and the church's social teaching, you'd select one and ignore the rest. The The message from the Vatican is very clear. You, you don't. You should not. They advise them. They don't say don't. They say they advise, you are advised not to do this. Well, speaking of these, these various issues, right, these politicians and other public Catholics, like you mentioned, uh, have to be concerned with, I think, you know, another argument that we hear all the time is this argument that abortion and euthanasia are the, quote, preeminent issue, right? This is language that the, the U.S. bishops have been using since the 90s to say that of a series of important 
issues, important pieces of Catholic social teaching, maybe the the one that takes precedence because it's such a great threat is abortion and is euthanasia. And Cardinal Lateria in this letter pushes back on that. He says, it would be misleading if such a statement, so this would be the statement that the USCCB were to draft, were to give the impression that abortion and euthanasia alone constitute the only grave matters of Catholic moral and social teaching that demand the fullest accountability on the part of Catholics. I was pretty surprised to see this pushback, honestly. Well, I wasn't, because if you read the programmatic document of Pope Francis, The Joy of the Gospel, issued the same year he was elected, November 2013, the Pope makes very clear that this kind of selective morality is not acceptable. And I don't think he's said differently when the American bishops came to the Vatican in 2019 and 2020, and they raised many questions with him. And I don't think he left them in any doubt where he stood on these issues. So the question here is another. Are they listening to the Pope or not? Right. And the third marker that's laid out is that they're encouraged to not just listen to the Pope, obviously, but to listen to other bishops' conferences, right? So there are these groups of bishops, usually by nation, though you have some by region too, that work together to to make guidelines to kind of govern how bishops operate in a, in a certain region. And in his letter, Cardinal Laderia says, you should work with other bishops' groups to try to make sure that there's some I guess consistency or unity, maybe you can explain a little better what he's going for there. Yes, he said you should learn from, you should listen to, and you should share your ideas with them. I mean, it's a Catholic church, so are you going out on a limb, or are you with the Catholic unity? Take Italy. We have an abortion law. The church fought hard against it. The Pope came out against it. And then, when it was passed, nobody here talked of not giving communion to the prime minister or to members of parliament who voted for. It didn't enter. I, I never heard it. Take any European country where there is abortion law, and we have a lot of them. None of them have gone the direction that the American bishops have. Now, I've asked some senior European bishops. I said, but how do you explain that the Americans are so out of sync with the other bishops' conferences on this question? And the answer was, well, maybe, and I, I was a bit surprised, about it. I'll say it here, I may start a storm, but I'll say it, said maybe it's because of the puritanical culture that is part of the country. One theory that I've heard on this is, is that the U.S. has so many variations in its abortion laws, and you know there are constantly more or less restrictions being made depending who's in power, that the bishops see it as kind of a malleable thing that they can influence, whereas in other countries it seems to be more settled law. Sort of like how here we, you know, the bishops fought really hard against the gay marriage law, but then as soon as it was passed by the Supreme Court, they were like, you didn't really hear about it very much after that because the bishops were saying, okay, no, it's it's decided it's law. No, I, I don't think that there's any bishops conference which doesn't take a stance against the abortion law in Europe. I think of England. That the bishops are quite strong. But, you know, if you keep shouting at a person, the other person isn't going to start listening to you at a certain point. The American bishops, I'm an outsider, but from what I've seen from outside, the American bishops have gone on now for how long? At least 17 years and perhaps 20, 30 on this issue. And 
what progress have they made going down that same track? It's not for me to answer the question. I raise the question. So, Jerry, I think the kind of big unanswered question for me here is the question of, like, what authority first this letter has, but also what authority any document, any agreement that the USCCB were to come up with would have. Because it's my understanding that the Bishop's Conference has, it kind of sits in a gray area of canon law, like, if the bishops decide on something and one bishop decides to act differently, the USCCB or the bishops' conference can't really overrule them. You can't sue the person in church court. There's not really any any consequences for doing that. And then when we talk about this like informal review that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the Vatican would do on whatever the bishops' conference agrees with, that's also you know, it uses this language of informal. And so I'm not sure how binding that is either. And so part of me is sort of sitting here wondering, does all of this make any difference if, say, Joe Biden's bishop wants to give him communion? The United States bishops is a conference, but the conference, as Pope John Paul II pointed out very clearly in 1981 in his document, which Cardinal Laderia specifically refers to, and the Paragraphs that he specifically refers to regard what happens if a conference goes to vote on a doctrinal question. Would this be a doctrinal question? It's a disciplinary question linked to doctrine. If they go to vote on this, if they have unanimity, then they can put this out as a policy. If they haven't unanimity, then they have to come to Rome. Rome will look at what is the breakdown If there is substantial agreement, Rome speaks about, in this letter, the cardinal speaks about true consensus. Then the policy stands, right? But an individual bishop could still choose to violate that policy. Well, John Paul II, like Cardinal Ratzinger, that's Benedict XVI, they were always very uneasy about bishops' conferences, crashing down and squashing the individual bishop, who has a very well-defined authority in the diocese or the jurisdiction that is given to him. They cannot squash that. The conference cannot squash it. So even if the majority of the con, the real substantial majority, went for going down this, an individual bishop still can say, no, I'm not going that way. There is no way that the conference can bind a bishop to follow a ruling of the conference. Now, likewise, can the CDF bind the conference? Right? Can Vatican tell the the U.S. Bishops' Conference no? Well, it depends. The CDF is a body that is the doctrinal office of the Pope. So at that point, I imagine the issue would land on the Pope's desk. So there's there are different ways that the Pope could step in if it were to be something that was of concern to the Vatican. I think the other consequence to talk about here is that we're not just talking about, you know, what what punishment could there be, what, you know, legal canonical consequence could there be. 
for any any bishop who was to decide to break off if it came to that, which, you know, all of this is very hypothetical right now because it relies on them reaching a consensus, which is going to be really hard to do. But there's also the question and the very real consequence of, you know, displaying disunity, which I think is a big concern for the Vatican right now. They see that the U.S. bishops are very publicly split on this. And obviously, if a bishop were to, you know, decide they didn't need to listen to something that the the conference decided together, then that would also be displaying disunity, which I don't think that the Vatican wants either. And it seems like this letter this week was kind of the Vatican's effort to offer them a chance to just slow down, as we say in New Orleans, slow your roll, you know, <laughs> slow down and and uh, take some time to dialogue, take a time to to come back to a, a place of unity before going forward on this because they see the road that they're going down. Colin, a careful reading of the letter would see it as a plea to have the bishops regain unity within the conference and to bring about unity within the church in the United States because it's not just the bishops that are split. There's also division within the church. It's a major concern. It's a major concern. And the Pope has spoken in the past to the American bishops about unity. I think this letter could be a watershed for the American bishops if they take it properly. They have to realize that there has to be some kind of compromise. They have to each find a way of living together. Do they intend, uh, this my question would be to the bishops, do you intend to continue as a body of bishops split, arguing, fighting publicly with each other? Or are you going to try to get that unity that Christ said the church should be working for? Yeah, I think that no matter what happens, we can probably see this as a turning point because this is going to be a decisive moment where these bishops have to make a decision. Are we going to try to work together or are we going to keep going down this path? So Jerry, you and I will be keeping our eye on what happens and what decision they take and we'll be discussing it here on Inside the Vatican. I appreciate the chance to get to talk to you about it. Thank you, Colleen. I'm sure it's just one chapter in a book that's being written. Before we go, there was one more big piece of Vatican news that we didn't get to talk about on this week's show. Abbiamo la possibilità di presentare il motu proprio di Papa Francesco con il quale istituisce il Ministero di Catechista. Lo abbiamo... On Tuesday, May 11th, Pope Francis officially established the lay ministry of catechists. That means that the some three million lay people working as catechists around the world will now be able to be officially installed in that role in a liturgical ceremony. And the Vatican is planning to release the text for that rite of institution soon. This is a big deal, especially in Latin America, because there, lay catechists are often leaders of their communities, sometimes in the absence of a parish priest or a religious sister. A Vatican spokesman said that the change is aimed at officially recognizing and valorizing the work that lay catechists have been doing for 2,000 years. So you can find coverage and analysis of the new official ministry of catechists, along with coverage of the Vatican's letter to the U.S. bishops on communion for politicians at americamagazine.org and, as always, linked in the show notes. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Kevin Christopher Robles. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at INSDEVaticanPod. 
That's Inside Without the Second Eye, Vatican Pod. You can also leave us your comments and questions at InsideTheVatican at americamedia.org. And if you want to support our show, the best way to do that is by subscribing to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.